Please open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 of this chapter. As we begin, I want to ask you to think about what helps you to endure. We often think of endurance in terms of physical endurance. If you've ever ran as exercise, what helped you to get through the run? And if some of you here don't just run a little bit, you run a lot. You run miles and miles every week, or you train for marathons. There has to be something that motivates you to keep going. And for some people, maybe it's just you want to see what your time is. You want to beat your personal record. For others, it's, it's a good way to listen to an audiobook. And you don't really care about the running. You want to finish the book, and it's a good chance to do that. Others of you might have other goals. Or think about climbing a mountain. You've ever done a hard mountain climb. What motivated you to keep going? Was it the, the time with family that you were getting as you hiked up the mountain? Or was it to, to check another one off your list of the, the number of 14ers that you summited? Or was it just to see the view as you got, went along the way and, and got to the top? We need motivations to do hard things. It's unusual to, to meet someone who says, I climbed the mountain just to climb the mountain. There's something else usually that's getting you there. What motivates endurance? That's the topic of this morning's text, endurance. And it's really the topic where the author left us with last week in chapter 10. He said, we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He said, what we need is endurance. We need to keep going. And so he picks up that theme this morning and helps us understand how it is that we endure, what it is about saving faith that endures. What's the characteristic of enduring faith? So this morning, let's go ahead and read these verses, and then I'll lay out our sermon points. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, beginning on page 1007, and we'll go down through verse 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he still died, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking to the reward, to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land, homeland, land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is God's word. Again, the author's picking up something he began last week in Hebrews chapter 10, this encouragement to endure in faith. Even as he warned them of the dangers of rejecting Jesus, he called them to press on, and he reassured them that they were not those who shrink back. He reminded them of the ways that they had suffered, that they already had endured faithfully trusting in Christ. And so now in chapter 11, he expands on what this kind of true persevering faith looks like. So this morning, we're going to look at three characteristics of enduring faith. First, enduring faith is convicted of things not seen. Enduring faith is convicted of things not seen. Second, enduring faith trusts in God's word. Enduring faith trusts in God's word. And third, enduring faith seeks God's commendation. Enduring faith seeks God's commendation. So enduring faith is convicted of things not seen, it trusts in God's word, and it seeks God's commendation. And as we look at these, we're going to see the author not only preaches these things to us, but he illustrates them for us with the life of Abraham and his family. We see that enduring faith is convicted of things not seen in verse 1 when the author uses that very simple expression. It sounds like a definition, and and scholars argue, is this a definition or description? I'm not really sure if it matters. But he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When he uses this phrase, things not seen, in verse 1, he sets it in parallel to things hoped for. So these unseen things of which the faithful are convicted are these hoped-for things. And I I think we could say they're they're the good things to come, the author talked about at the beginning of chapter 10. They are the the new covenant blessings of a conscience cleansed by Christ's blood. They're the new covenant blessings of forgiveness of sin, of fellowship with God and through Jesus Christ. These are the things unseen that we are to be convicted of. They also include the the doctrines of Christ that the author of Hebrews has been expounding to us. That Jesus is the one who tasted death for us. That he entered heaven and sat down at God's right hand. 
having finished making sacrifice for sin and now living to make intercession for us. And related to this, those who endure must be assured of Christ's coming again. That was a big emphasis of the end of chapter 10, wasn't it? That Jesus is coming and soon, so endure. So though we cannot see him now, we endure because we know that we will see him, that he is coming again. So in short, these things unseen that we are to be convicted of and assured of, these things are the the truth about Christ, the truth about the gospel, and the gospel's promises. That's what the things hoped for are, the truth about Christ, the gospel, and its promises. You see, these aren't wishful thinking. These aren't just sort of a wing and a prayer type of wishes. These are the the solid realities of the gospel that the author has been proclaiming to us. Enduring faith is convicted of these things. In order to help us in our conviction of things not seen, in verse 3, the author points us back to God's work of creation. And he's showing us that to trust in things not seen, again, it's not kind of wishful thinking, it's not a foolish hope. The assurance of things unseen is rooted in God's power as creator. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The God of the Old and New Testament is the God who creates out of nothing. He makes the things we see out of the things that are not. Now, we live in an age where creation by God is a hugely contested idea. And because of that, we might easily miss the author's point. But consider what his original audience would have all agreed to about creation. There would have been no debate about the first chapters of Genesis. They believed God creates through his word. They believed that everything that is came about by the power of God's word. They shared that conviction. They were assured that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So they all shared this conviction of the basic truth. This is sort of Bible 101 for them. So this point, the author's point here, is that the same faith that the, that the same faith in the same God who brought everything out of nothing is what you need to endure. The God who made everything out of nothing is able to forgive your sin through Jesus Christ. He is able to raise you up from the dead on the last day. The God who made all that you see is coming again, and you will see him face to face. The faith that endures is convicted of the things not seen. And this faith is rooted in the nature of God himself. The Christ enthroned on high in heaven, the Christ whose return we're waiting for, is the one who created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The author is grounding our hope in these, perhaps we might say, future realities of of ultimate salvation, glorification in Christ. Our, our Our hope in those things is grounded in the fact that we can see creation. And we know God is the one who brought it to be by the word of his power. The author illustrates his point of believing in the things not seen by by pointing us to Abraham. So beginning in verse 8, we have an extended example of Abraham. 
And the first thing we hear about Abraham in verse 8 is that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. The things unseen in Abraham's life have a kind of double meaning. He didn't know what the land was like where he was going. He, he hadn't seen it before. That was an unknown for him. And he was called to trust in the promises of a God that he could not see. He was called to trust in the promises of a God that he could not see while going to a land that he did not know. And despite all of that, all that he did not see and could not know, Abraham obeyed. He heard God's call and obeyed. Faith in the unseen things becomes visible in our obedience to God. And in Abraham's case, we see that his faith helped him to endure. We know that Abraham did receive many material blessings from God in his lifetime. And even though it was a long time, he did receive the son of promise. He lived to see grandsons. We know that he received many material blessings. He became a wealthy kind of chieftain in Canaan. But he also never possessed the land. The only part of the land he ever owned outright was the burial place for his wife, Sarah. So most of the great promises God gave him, he never fully realized. But he endured, and verse 10 tells us how he endured. For he was looking forward to the heavenly city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Somehow Abraham knew, even in this uh, very kind of mere call of God that he received, he knew that Canaan was just a shadowy picture of a greater reality. He looked forward to an eternal life with God. That's why he went out of Ur. That's the thing that motivated him to take that journey and to continue following God. That's what motivated his obedience and endurance. So where do you need endurance this morning. The things unseen, the promises of the gospel, are what enable you to endure. Those things are what enable you to endure in obedience. So consider perhaps the, the need to endure in forgiving someone. Where does that power come from? Well, doesn't it come from the knowledge that you've been forgiven much by Christ? Perhaps you need to endure in patience. Hasn't God been patient to you in Christ? Isn't your high priest patiently interceding with God for you, on your behalf? Perhaps you need endurance to keep doing what is right, to endure in doing the righteous thing and the just thing, whether at your, your place of work or, again, in a difficult relationship. You find that it's costly to keep having to do the right thing. God's own righteousness helps us to endure. We have a hope that one day all things will be put right, that our judge will come, and evil will be finally cast into hell. Faith in that unseen promise of a world put to rights is what enables us to endure in doing justice and righteousness. So when we need endurance, we look to the promises of Christ in the gospel. We know that the same God who spoke the world into existence 
is the God who has promised to save us in Christ. And so we rest assured in Christ. We endure in Christ knowing that Christ will not lose any of those he purchased with his blood. We endure. We endure in faith, in the conviction of the things not seen. In verse 3, we also see the seed of the second aspect of enduring faith. Enduring faith trusts in God's word. Again, verse 3 says the universe was created and it tells us the means by which it was created. It was created by the word of God. The universe was created by the word of God. God spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. And what's important for us to see is that the creation pattern is also the salvation pattern. God speaks salvation into existence by his word, by the word of his promise. In Romans 4, chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 21, Paul says that Abraham was counted righteous because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. We're going to keep talking about Abraham throughout this, but what I want you to notice here is this idea of promise. Abraham believed God's promise. Enduring faith trusts in God's powerful, promising word. We see the power of, of God's word again in this creative act, right? That's God's word's power on display. He spoke into existence things that were not. So we have no reason to doubt God. We have no reason to doubt his ability to keep his promises. His powerful word creates life and sustains life. And this is not only true of the physical realities that we see all around us. It's true of spiritual realities. The God who said, let there be light, also has authority to say, your sins are forgiven. Just as Jesus did to the paralytic in Mark 2. The creator of the world promised his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise he can keep as the creator and ruler and a promise we can bank on. So when we face intense suffering and we're tempted to believe that we are beyond help, we look to the surety of God's powerful promises. When nothing around us looks like a reason for hope, when we think that we're kind of out of reach of any saving grace. We think that our guilt is too great, our, our sickness is terminal, our relationships are lost. We're to look to God's powerful promises. For the first readers of Hebrews, they may have thought, you know, this society we're living in is never going to change. Christians will never be able to survive and prosper as long as our our property continues to be plundered, as long as our friends keep being thrown in jail. What hope is there for keeping going in a life like this? Why should we raise our children in this faith when this is their fate? But the author says, remember God's powerful word, God's creative word. He created life out of nothing and he will not fail to keep his promises to you. Endure with the assurance that God is able to do what he promised. This idea of promise is also crucial to the believer's faith in God's word. 
When we are called to trust God's word, we're not simply trusting propositions or doctrines, though we are trusting those. We're called to believe in a God who makes promises. He promises us things. Enduring faith trusts in God's promises. So God's word is not just his powerful word, it's his promising word. The author told us in Hebrews chapter 8 that Christ's covenant, the new covenant, is better than the old because the new covenant is enacted on better promises. And in chapter 8, the context there is the, the new covenant promises of forgiveness of sin, that God will remember your sin no more because of what Christ has done, and that you will know God. You'll have this intimate heart-level fellowship with God because Jesus has made a way for you into God's holy place. These promises belong to us because of what Jesus has done. Because he took on flesh and tasted death for us, we can be forgiven of sins. Because he rose from the dead and ascended to God's right hand, we have confidence to draw near to God in fellowship. Because Christ is our high priest, the promises of God to us are unshakable. The author draws attention to the way that Abraham and his family trusted God's promises in verse 9. So listen to all the, or the, the, the references to promise here. It says, By faith he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham's legacy here is that he trusted in God's promise and his sons and, son and grandsons trusted in God's promise. Now that might not be the way we're most quick to characterize Isaac and Jacob, but that's the author of Hebrews' way. He said Abraham left the legacy of trusting in God's promise. That's what was most important about Abraham. And then he says this of, of Sarah in verse 11. By, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who'd promised. You see the power and promise there together again. She believed and she was given power to conceive. Abraham and Sarah and their children lived by faith in the promises of God. We were told in the last chapter, quoting Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And here we see Abraham doing exactly that. In the land, how did he live? He lived by faith, living with his sons and grandson by faith in the promises of God. Sarah lived by faith and she received power to bring life into the world. God had promised them land, children, and that the nations would be blessed through them. And throughout their lives, these promises often seem like they wouldn't come true. We see them, the patriarchs often sinning by failing to believe in these promises. So their faith wasn't perfect, which should encourage all of us. But even with these imperfections, God's final verdict on them is that they trusted me. They trusted God's promises. Now, as we look at their example, we should note how they're different from us. There's something unique about Abraham and the promises God made to Abraham and Sarah. When God's making these promises of, of, a, of them um, having a child, it's not just any child, right? They're not, they're not just like any other infertile couple, although certainly I'm sure there's things we can learn from them. But they play a unique role in God's plan to save the world. God was bringing 
Jesus into the world through Abraham and Sarah. So when, when they're trusting God for a child, they're trusting God for this ultimate promise, the seed of Abraham through whom the world would be blessed. When Abraham and Sarah are waiting on God to fulfill this promise, they're waiting on God to provide salvation from sin. And so when God gave Sarah the power to conceive, it was another step closer to Jesus coming, the seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head. So when we, we read God dealing with his people here, Abraham and Sarah, and giving them these very tangible physical blessings, we're not reading proof in the prosperity gospel. That if we would just trust God, that we would get these tangible blessings. We would, we would be healthy and we would have these certain uh, physical circumstances, that we'd be wealthy. No, that's not what we're being shown here. The promises to Abraham and Sarah here are, are gospel promises hidden in their family line. They're promises that are really only seen from our perspective looking back, but by some, in some way they understood them. They understood that the thing they were trusting was not just a thing for themselves right here, right now, but was this heavenly city, this heavenly country that they were looking towards. We see that these promises to Abraham are ultimately life out of death promises. Look at verse 12. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. You see the, the cosmic scope? Stars in heaven, grains, uh, grains of sand by the seashore. Do you see the life out of death? Abraham's as good as dead and God brings multitudes out of him and Sarah. By his powerful word, God creates his redeemed people out of the deadness of Abraham. If that doesn't show you who we are, I don't know what does. We are the people. We are the people that are life out of death people. And we, we serve the life out of death Savior who died and rose again. The promises of God to Abraham are the promises of heavenly life that ultimately only comes through Jesus Christ, the one who was raised from the dead. These were the promises that Abraham and his family trusted in. And the faith and the promises of salvation in Christ is what still enables us to endure today. We endure by trusting in God's promises. Enduring faith trusts in God's promises because these promises are better than anything that the world has to offer. The readers of Hebrews may have thought they could gain some peace by reverting back to Judaism, right? Judaism was a known quantity in their world. And they might have thought, well, as long as we just go back to Judaism, we can sort of blend in a little easier. We won't be completely forsaking God and we'll make our lives easier. But what a tragic exchange that would have been. The author warned them last week in chapter 10 that if you turn your back on Christ, you're trampling underfoot the Son of God. You're profaning the blood of the covenant, the blood by which you have entrance into God's holy place. The promise of God is eternal life to those who believe in Christ. What can the world provide? What the world provides is at best 
temporary security and comfort. It's here and then it's gone. For faith to endure, it must be fixed on God's powerful, promising word. As dad already prayed for us, dad uh, prayed about Abraham's call, how Abraham heard that call and he responded in faith. That's the essence of faith. Faith responds to God's powerful, promising word. Persecution and suffering, they obscure our vision, but God's word remains clear and true. You can hold on to it. It will lead you to safety. So that's how we endure. We endure by trusting in God's powerful word and in his promising word. The power of God's word shows us God's promises are able to save you. And the promises of God's word show us that God loves you because he makes promises to you. The God who promised you eternal life through Jesus Christ is the God who took on flesh in Jesus Christ to save us. He is able and willing to save. So because of God's powerful love, which come to us in his word, we can endure in faith. Enduring faith trusts in God's word. In verse 2, we see another aspect of enduring faith. Enduring faith seeks God's commendation. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, the people of old, in the Greek it's actually presbyteroi, the elders, receive their commendation. And this title, people of old receive their commendation, is really the heading of verses 4 through 7. So he tells us people of old receive their commendation, and then he goes through a list of people of old who receive their commendation. He gives us three examples of faithful people of old, all coming from Genesis 4 through 6. So these are the generations of people after Adam and Eve and uh, between Abraham or before Abraham. So we get Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Abel was Adam and Eve's second-born son we read about earlier. Enoch is this mysterious figure that we'll talk about in a second. And then Noah, of course, is the, the one who built the ark. In each case, what the author wants us to see is that they lived by faith and that they were commended or rewarded by God. So enduring faith seeks God's commendation. Before we look at the examples themselves, I want us to look at an interpretive key the author provides that helps us understand the examples, and that's verse 6. So he pauses in the middle of his list of examples and he says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice we see here in this brief verse three terms, faith, believe, or four terms, draw near to God and seek God. I think these are all different ways of just saying the same thing. To, to have faith, to believe, is to draw near to God. To seek God is to have faith in God. Faith seeks God. It's the way people draw near to God. And this faith is motivated by the reward that God gives to those who seek him. This faith, this enduring faith, is motivated by a desire to be pleasing to God or to please God. True faith knows God as the rewarder. So the big question becomes, what's the reward? We might be tempted to think again that it's an earthly blessing. 
But the context, I think, allows us to describe the reward in a variety of ways. We can just generally say it's God's commendation. That's what verse 2 tells us. But then we see that in both Abel and Enoch's case, when they were commended by God, we get a, a further specifying of how they were commended. We don't see the word commended in Noah's case, but we are told that he received or he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So look, look at Enoch and Abel's case first. Abel was commended as righteous in verse 4. And then Enoch was commended as having pleased God. Back in chapter 10, the author quoted from the prophet Habakkuk to say, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the reward of faith is the righteousness that pleases God. God is not pleased with anyone whose status is unrighteous. The reward of faith is the righteousness that pleases God, and this lays the foundation for faith's ultimate reward, which is God himself. What I want you to see here is God supplies the means and the end. God declares us righteous by faith in Jesus Christ so that we can receive this reward. With our righteous status, we can enter God's presence and fellowship with God. It may be easier to see from the, looking at it from a negative perspective. Apart from faith, we can't please God. On our own, we are unrighteous. We deserve God's judgment. And if we don't trust in Christ's saving work for us, we have only the fearful expectation of judgment to look forward to, according to Hebrews chapter 10. Our unrighteousness separates us from God. Our unrighteous nature deserves and receives God's displeasure. But for those who seek God by faith in Christ, we get the reward of righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith. And if we have the righteousness that comes by faith, if we're counted righteous in Christ, we're pleasing to God and we can fellowship with God. We can draw near to God with a clean conscience, cleansed by the blood of Christ. So faith seeks this condemnation from God, the commendation that says you are counted righteous because of your faith in Christ, Christ crucified and risen. Faith seeks the reward of dwelling in God's heavenly throne room. Faith begins with the conviction that I'm unrighteous and that that's the worst thing about me, my sin. It separates me from God and it desires to be pleasing to God by faith in Jesus. This kind of faith endures because it's convinced that God's commendation is better than anything the world has to offer. I think that's what we see in the three examples of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. In Abel's case, we're told that because of his faith, God commend, commended him as righteous. Now, Abel's faith is not mentioned in the Genesis passage we read earlier, chapter 4. The details there about Abel are pretty sparse. When he offered the firstborn of his flock to God, it seems in, in keeping what, what would later be the, the rules for burnt offering, uh, we know that his blood cried out to God. We know that God received his sacrifice or regarded his sacrifice. And he did not regard his brother Cain's grain offering. But here the author of Hebrews gives us this Holy Spirit-inspired 
interpretation of Abel's actions and God's approval. God received Abel's offering because of his faith. And God commended Abel as righteous. God showered favor on Abel's faith by granting him the grace of a righteous status. You might say the author of Hebrews wants, to, wants us to change the way we read the Abel story. He doesn't want us to see Abel as a tragic murder victim. He wants us to see Abel as one who sought God and was rewarded. Even though he died, he still speaks. From his grave, he testifies that God exists and God is a rewarder of those who seek him. So even though he was murdered for his faith, Abel endured and was commended by God as righteous. His his violent end does not testify against him in any way. God commends him as righteous. The Enoch story is very strange. He gets two verses in the midst of a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's all we have about Enoch in the Bible, and then this in Hebrews. But Enoch and Abel represent a contrast. Abel had faith and died. He was murdered by his own brother. Enoch had faith and did not see death. The author in this tiny verse about Enoch says three times he was taken up. God took him up. And before he was taken up, he was commended as pleasing to God. Enoch walked with God. We can't fathom almost what it means to be taken up, right? That's just not a thing that's in our experience of life, right? We know of a couple people in the Bible that it happens to, but that's just not something we really can, can understand. We, we hope it happens to us, right? We hope that by God's grace, we are, we are taken up to meet Christ in the air, that he returns before, before we face death. But the normal experience is that, that believers face death. But the author of Hebrews, I think, wants us to see there's something even more awesome about Enoch than his being taken up by God. And that is that he was commended as having pleased God. That's God's verdict on Enoch. I take pleasure in you, Enoch. That's the most important thing about him. Enoch endured in faith. He walked with God, seeking the reward that comes from walking with God, and he received it. His being taken up is just a cherry on top. And then finally, we see Noah's example. Noah needed God's warning about, or he heeded God's warning about the things unseen, right? He believed that judgment was coming. He couldn't see the coming flood, but he trusted the word he heard from God, and so he built the ark. So Noah's faith endured in the face of God's warning and judgment. Noah's faith endured in the midst of a wicked generation. And it led him to take this radical step of building this ark. When there was you know, no flood to be seen, as far as he knew, just a, a warning of judgment. And by his faith, he and his family are saved. But this salvation was not his only reward. It says, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. God rewarded Noah with a gracious inheritance. 
He possessed the righteousness that comes by faith. In the case of Enoch and Noah, we can point to these more tangible rewards, right? Enoch escaped death. Noah miraculously survives this cataclysmic flood. But these rewards are like signs pointing to the greater reward. They pleased God. They were commended by God. We have to say it's hard to detect any earthly reward in Abel's case, right? Maybe he had a pretty good life up until the point he was murdered. But all three of these, the common thread is that they were commended by God. They sought God's reward and God did not disappoint them. These three are our brothers enjoying eternal life even now. Enduring faith seeks God's commendation. Faith draws near to God, believing that God saves those who seek him. And without faith, there is no salvation. For the audience of Hebrews, these three examples would have been powerful. Perhaps they had expected when they first began following Christ that they would be raptured like Enoch, that they would live to see the Lord's return. But they've witnessed some of their, murder, their brothers perhaps be murdered the way Abel was. Like Noah, they lived in the midst of a perverse generation. Perhaps they were unsure, will God deliver us through this persecution that we're enduring? These three examples were meant to show them how much they already have from God. If they are in Christ, they are declared righteous. Their evil consciences have been cleansed. They can draw near to God because they have a great high priest seated in heaven. In a real way, the new covenant believers, we receive our reward before we die. That's where Hebrews 11 ends up. We can borrow a little bit from next week's capital by looking at verses 39 through 40. After he lists a bunch of other Old Testament saints, he says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The reward that Abel and Enoch and Noah sought has been provided to us through Christ. And the saints of old, they receive their ultimate reward once and for all through the work of Christ. We can't explain all the mystery of what happened to them when they died. But Hebrews is telling us their ultimate reward is tied to what we have already received, what we already possess, what's been provided to us through our Savior, Jesus, crucified, risen, ascended, and seated. So whether we're talking about the original audience of Hebrews or ourselves, the message is the same. We endure faith by seeking God's commendation. And we can know that we have received God's commendation already in Christ. The blessing of faith in Christ is that God looks on us as he looks on Christ. By faith in Christ, we've died to sin. So God looks on us as sharing in Christ's perfect death for sin. By faith in Christ, we're alive with Christ. We are new creations in him. By faith in Christ, Paul says, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. By faith in Christ, we are God's beloved children. 
in whom he is well pleased. All these things are ours by faith in Christ. These are the rewards that we seek and we already possess. We receive God's commendation by faith in Christ. Note that the faith that seeks this reward isn't the, a quest for the, the pious, those who are, are really, really holy. This seeking, it's, it's the desperate seeking of sinners looking for our Savior. It's seeking born out of the conviction that we are damned by our sins. It's a seeking that knows that true life is only found in being forgiven by God through what Jesus has done. Those who seek God's commendation, they don't need to clean themselves up. You simply need to come to Christ and you will be saved. Seek Christ. Seek your reward in Christ and you will not be disappointed. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. Apart from Christ's sacrifice, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so the call to faith here in Hebrews 11, it's not a call to some kind of generic generic faith. Like you might see in TV shows, just the word believe. It's not just a positive vision of believing. It's not good karma. The author of Hebrews isn't teaching a philosophy of self-actualization. The call of Hebrews 11 is a call to faith your place, place your faith in Christ alone. And it's a call that comes with a warning. If you turn aside from Christ, there's no hope. It's a call to faith in Christ. We have to confess that oftentimes we are lulled into a a false sense of security by our comfortable lives. But we need to remember, judgment's coming. We need the righteousness that comes by faith, the imputed righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. Without that righteousness, it is impossible to please God. But if you draw near by faith in Christ, God will receive you. He will reward those who seek him. If you seek that reward of of God's pleasure through Christ, you will find it. So one way to put the question of faith is, what are you seeking? Are you seeking the reward that comes through faith in Christ? Are you simply seeking to get your own way or to escape discomfort? Faith seeks God's commendation. The final paragraph of our passage extends the illustration of Abraham, and it begins by saying, these all died in faith. These all is Abraham and his family. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. That's verse 13. So this paragraph, this final paragraph of our passage, draws together the threads of enduring faith, and they answer a big question. What about death? If believers die, are we any better off than our pagan neighbors? And the author's answer is, yes, you are better off. The author's resounding answer is, death is no indictment of enduring faith. Because God's commendation is greater than death. Let's read verses 13 through 16 again. These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a better homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Once again, despite all the amazing blessings that Abraham and his family enjoyed, they they died without seeing all of God's promises fulfilled. It says that he only saw them from afar. That's an interesting play on this idea of faith in the things unseen. In, In some way, from far away, Abraham saw them. But what's more important, I think, is the word greeted them. It signifies that Abraham died believing what God promised. He welcomed them, even if he didn't enjoy their fullness in this life. I think that's a really interesting idea to, to kind of roll it around in your mind. What it means to, to greet God's promises or, or to shun them. To be bitter that you haven't enjoyed as much as you might have. Are you greeting God's promises? The author tells us that when you look at the whole of the patriarch's lives, that they testify to enduring faith. So Abraham left Ur and he, he didn't go back. He, he did try to escape to Egypt a couple times during a famine. But even then, the Lord was gracious to him. Jacob, he went to Laban, but he came back, even though he was scared of facing Esau. And they remained as strangers and sojourners in the land. This, and in this way, they testified to the genuineness of their faith. They made it clear by staying in the land Their faith was set on God's better heavenly country. And they received the ultimate commendation. God is not ashamed of them. He is not ashamed to be identified with them. Isn't that good news? God is not ashamed of those who please him by faith. They belong to him. In the grand scheme of things, Abraham's story is much closer to Abel's story than Enoch's story, right? He suffered and he died. He was not raptured. Somewhere in Canaan, there are his graves and the graves of his descendants. But they died seeking God's heavenly country. This is what the readers of Hebrews needed to hear. They needed to be encouraged. Don't turn back. To the Levitical system. Don't leave the land where I've planted you. They need a reminder. Your experience is not unusual. Your great ancestor in the faith, Abel, he was murdered for his faith. Your father in the faith, Abraham, he died not experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises, yet he endured reading God's promises. He died in faith. It may sound strange or morbid to say that this should be a goal of ours, but it should be. We should aspire to die in faith. Even as we hope to see Jesus right now, we desire to die in faith. It's not wrong to pray, come Lord Jesus. 
especially on a week like this one where we've seen so much tragedy in our world. But we keep pressing on toward that heavenly city whose designer and builder is God. We look to the reward that we will dwell with Christ for all eternity. We don't expect that we're going to understand all the disappointments in this life. I think many of us just grieve for our, our brother Walter, who was looking forward to this day. They've been planning it, right? We all thought COVID was over. And then he misses part of the wedding. What a hard thing. Who can explain that? But we endure in faith. We endure small and great disappointments, trusting that these disappointments are not signs of God's displeasure with us. Remember, Abel was murdered and yet commended by God as righteous. And he still speaks of God's faithfulness. So we press on knowing that if we die in faith, we will one day be on the other side of death and we will be taken up like Enoch. Christ will return. We'll come out of our graves and we'll meet him in the air. We will join him in that heavenly city, gathered around his banquet table, where there's no more crying or pain. We will receive our reward, the reward that we've already received in Christ. So believe in the things not seen, because one day you will see Christ face to face. Believe in God's word, because it's true and good and powerful. All the promises of God are true for you in Christ. Seek God's commendation. The world, the flesh, and the devil will try to shame you in every way. But if you endure to the end, you will receive the commendation of Abraham. God is not ashamed of you. He will not be ashamed to be called your God, but he will bring you to himself. He'll bring you to the place he's prepared for you. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help to fix our eyes on you. Help us to believe in you, to believe that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. The affections of our hearts are often drawn away by the, the promised rewards of our sin and our, our fleshly desires. So we pray for help to put the light of those things. Help us in our fellowship to, to draw one another away from this world and to the, the foundation of your word. Help us each day to respond to your gracious call, to set our hopes on your promises, and to press on to the end. Oh, Father, we do pray for Christ to come. We pray for, for the joy of seeing his face, and we look forward to that endless day of celebrating in your presence. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.